Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first ever episode of Diplomacy. In this podcast series, we'll give you some tips, tricks, and insights from the industry pros and help you run communications as smoothly as possible. Let me introduce myself. I'm Louis de Schollemer. I'm the managing partner at Corporate Diplomat, a consultancy firm based in Brussels, Belgium, dedicated to business critical communications and focused on mergers and acquisitions. I'm here today with my audio manager for this series, Tara Sabic, and our first guest today is Gwendolyn Ornick. And Gwendolyn? I'm Gwendolyn Ornick, um, head of company reputation for UCB, biopharma company based out of Belgium but with a global scope. I have experience of over 20 years in corporate communication with a lot of M&A deals. And I've done a lot of M&A deals over the years, smaller ones in Europe to very big global deals, mainly for the uh, food and agriculture business. Great. So I'd like to jump right in and ask you a few factors that might be crucial to consider in mergers and acquisitions. Let's start by discussing structure. Is it an operating model or is it a cultural model that makes the difference for the M&A? So if you do a deal, you do the deal, right? If the deal team decided and the company decided to do a deal based on all the right parameters, because yes, it is a cultural fit. Yes, it fits in the company strategy. It's what we want to do long term for an acquisition divestment, the opposite. Once that's decided, then you don't have any option. anymore. You need to get it done right? You need to get it done right. And I, I, it's a very good question, Louis, about the cultural thing. I think it's very much based on having the right team dealing with the actual uh, acquisition and the integration, super important. Be a team with experience, uh, a very dedicated team, a very multi-faceted teams, so very transversal. So people from all different parts of the company. The culture aspect is, that's why I struggle with your question, because two companies need to be cultural fit to make a deal work. If the culture of the companies is very different, you will, you will definitely run into problems. So if the deal is set up right and the culture of both companies fits well, it will accelerate. I think it will be a positive momentum to get, to get a good integration. If you go for um, the cultural aspect, when do you find out if the cultures differ or match? Can you, can you find out before? <laughs> yeah, as, I think it's, it's important to do that as best as possible. And surprises, I think, always come. We've done a lot of deals, and we, and we all know the surprises, uh, uh, unforeseen surprises, <laughs> always. That's what makes yeah. it so interesting, right? Yeah. It, is not a, it is not like... Uh, it is not repetitive. The methodology is, but each time you bump into different angles and different surprises and challenges. I think it's very important and that the M&A team needs to be a team that, as I said before, is transversal. So if they, you need, of course, you need to, the finance uh, people in there who can talk with the bankers, super important. But you need people from talent and HR there. You need people from communication because everybody looks at things with a different angle. I think in today's world where we talk so much about diversity, well, actually, in an M&A team needs to be truly diverse in order to capture all these elements. And then, and then you will probably have as 
less surprises as possible. Now, I think where the surprises usually come from a cultural point of view is that to have one culture in a company is is one thing, but then you have the geographical differences. So you can have a company with a very strong culture and your culture and your values fit. All the boxes are ticked. It feels right. But then if you go and implement it, certainly in the integration phase, and you go in country and you go deeper, you will see differences. And they are often fed by cultural differences. Cultural interpretations of the company culture can be slightly different. And in reality, we see that often that can give some surprises, some challenges. Yeah. If you if you go from the, we, we call this, or we try to use this terminology of end to end in our support that we do in, in M&A. So where we say we are there at the very beginning when the, the central deal team is putting together the thoughts on why do they want to do this and, and um, the strategy behind it, expressing the, the vision of, of why this deal is, is so important. So that's when we try to intervene to help. And then it goes up till wherever the end is in the integration. So at some stage when you say, okay, now we believe that the acquisition has made its spot and it has placed it. Do you see this end-to-end as a real process? Do you see that the same way? Because it is a long process. It can be 18 months. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Is I think it's safe, Or is the reality different? For yeah, you? I think it, it's the right thing to do. In reality, I have never seen it really happen. Mm. So the right thing to do is indeed to be working at conception of a deal all the way through to integration. That beginning phase, I've never seen communication professionals be very involved and and in any company I've worked for. Why is that? I think it's because it starts with a very small team who keeps things very confidential. The communication team often doesn't have the bandwidth to do that as well. So they they can't go after it. So it's the two things. Huh? It's the M&A team very much starting with numbers. It's communication team focusing on many other things. And it's just not top of mind of companies and deal teams. I think if we can get the, the deal teams to have the communication people more top of mind from the beginning, I think there's no, it's not intentional that they don't involve them. It's just not on the radar. In the discussions I had with, with deal team people, more the financial ones, if you have the discussions with them, they, they totally get it. As I said, it's not intentional, but it's just not part of their setup. Now, when you say deal needs to be part of the company strategy, there I see no issue of coming in late in a sense that the company, well, hopefully the company strategy, big lines are clear for all employees, for the deal team and for everybody else, the outside world to a certain degree. So I would assume that any deal that the company is preparing, small or big, fits into that strategy. So retrofitting the deal rationale into the company strategy, if everybody does his homework, should be no problem. I hardly see, I've hardly seen any hiccups there. I do think that having communication people involved earlier on can be a true added value in several, and I've, I've seen it recently, to ask questions like, for example, the reputational questions. Have we done a proper reputational scan of the counterparts? What is the external perception of the potential counterpart in, in, in the public arena? Because if you look at the numbers, it might be the perfect fit. 
and we all know how that goes, perfect fits, fits in the growth strategy or divestment strategy, but have we actually thought about the unintended consequences the reputation of the acquired company can give? So that piece. And the second piece is also where I see companies maturing very softly is the sustainability approach. I think the M&A teams, as I said before, look at numbers, not so much on the soft things, but the sustainability approach and philosophy of companies going forward is going to be so incredibly important. And it's very long term view. It should be one of the many, not the only one, but one of the many parameters that are really properly looked at when doing due diligence on a company and seeing whether they're a proper fit. What is their role in society, basically, which is often actually linked also to the reputational piece. And I think what we've seen through Corona, through the whole pandemic, is that those companies who were very much anchored in society and have and had a, a very core commitment to sustainability actually show to be quite resilient throughout the whole pandemic. Even more reason to actually uh, not ignore that piece. When you talk about sustainability, you're talking really much more about the role in society than yeah. environment or or whatever or CO2 yeah. emissions. Yeah. It is really um, taking taking a role, taking a responsibility, dedicating appropriate funds in a trust or local community, or that is what you what you consider. Yeah, it goes even more core. It's being a company that takes up its societal responsibility, believing that that will actually enhance long-term business success. So being connected with the needs of society, being a partner with society at large, whether it is in the environmental piece or in the well-being or health piece, but being part and taking your role in society is going to be, and it's for companies who see this as a real business driver, that's going to be part of their long-term success. No, but I think it, it's interesting because there is no real objective way to look into the sustainability commitment, is there? So how would you assess that the company, it's not always very easy if you are um, necessarily talk about local communities. Yeah, I think it's probably very much linked to the culture also and the overall commitment of a company. I think some companies are probably very mature in this. Think of Unilever and Mars and Nestle and uh, very much the B2C because they have that consumer push. Mm. Others are still in the old world of philanthropy, which is not at all what this is about. So you have a whole scala of companies. Huh? Measuring it's not easy certainly today, because that whole piece is maturing. Nevertheless, just having it on the radar and as part of one of the things you need to look into and that you can, every company has a, a sustainability report or an annual report. There are ways to really dive into and dig into what is their commitment to society. I think there's way to look into it. And with some, you can go very deep and with other will be more superficial. That's absolutely clear. I think the research, the pre-research and the due diligence, that is something that we have come across several times is that the due diligence is going beyond the uh, simple analysis of financial data and, and whatever. Okay, You can look into it and have a legal due diligence and see whatever um, conflicts there may be. You get a list of that, but that is not sufficient 
to really go beyond what the corporate behavior is and the attitude. And I think what it comes down to, as I was thinking about this discussion, I was thinking, okay, what's like the key thing in M&A that I always try to have top of mind? And I think it is stakeholder management. An M&A deal always benefits from a very deep stakeholder analysis and management. And exactly to the point you say, only looking at the financials and then maybe only looking at some legal aspect. And often HR is very involved, some HR aspects. Mm. Is that enough? Shouldn't you do a true stakeholder analysis going across, obviously, those very, very important elements, but also others like as we just said, links with society, uh, representation and trade associations, just naming a few, it goes quite broad. So stakeholder analysis and management upfront in a deal, I think, can only benefit the success eventually. Tara, go for it. Okay. Well, what we're trying to also do is get top three best tips for success, just something that other people might not consider. So what would be your top three tips? Mm -hmm. First of all, but not in, in order of priority, you need a very resilient team. You really need people who can focus just on this and can go the extra mile a few times during the crunch of a deal. So resilience of a team is super important. Trust within the deal team is also one of the prerequisites to to any success. There's a lot of highly confidential information going around and there's constant change, constant iterations of a contract, tweaks, so that trust among the team to be willing to share everything is again paramount for success. And the last one, maybe I think you need to have a team of people who like this kind of work, because if you're surrounded with people who love doing M&A deals, who love the high adrenaline, the huge learning curve that you have, it can be so much fun, although it's so hard work. So you need a certain type of person who really likes this. And then as we as we've done so many times, it's the most fun thing to do. So you need a really small, nimble team. The larger the team becomes, uh, the more messy it is. So one, two people, more than enough, I found, if they can focus. And then it's about being able to build those connections within the deal team and that trust. You need to be able to connect all the dots between all the things that you're hearing And then finally, what I would add is you need to be able to also be the mirror of the outside world to the people in the deal team. What I've seen so many times in deal teams is that as soon as you start drafting the Q&A, but the questions and the answers, and you draft the press release or the key messages, and people take the time to look at it, often last minute, but that's just how it goes in such uh, environment. That's when you start having the real discussion. It needs to become very literal and it needs to become very obvious for people that this is actually what's going to go out there. And by doing that, I think you bring a bit that mirror of this is what the outside world is going to see, which often triggers the right discussions. And the earlier you can have them in the process, the better. My experience is that it usually comes very late in the process. There's a part of it then there that is really about kind of buying into your own story before it goes out to anybody else. 
Yeah, it's 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 to give you one simple example in the Q and A. It's putting in those questions that you know the external world might ask because you did your stakeholder mapping. You know all the stakeholders, so you build a Q and A from all these potential stakeholders. And it's those questions which people who are very much involved in the nitty gritty of the deal, the legal and the financial pieces, don't even think of, and would actually like that nobody asked that question. They would kind of prefer the question would not be part of a Q&A. And that's where I think it's communication. You bring in added value and you say, that's not the right answer. We need to prepare it for any question that might come from the outside. And we are actually going to try and map all the blind spots just to be prepared in case the question comes. So you can't be afraid of the uncomfortable. Totally, totally. You need to bring as communicators, I think you need to help fill all the blind spots that there's no surprises. Super, super. Great. Thank you for taking okay. the time. Bye, Tara. Bye, Louis. Thank you for joining us today in this episode of Diplomacy. To find out more about us, please visit www.corporate-diplomat.com or subscribe to us on our LinkedIn page for more updates, success tips, articles and of course news about our next podcast have a great day thank you <laughs>